You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. i got to tell you something, people. A few weeks ago, I mentioned how when me and Joanne were filling out the application for our wedding license, it actually asked if we were related, which threw us off. It was crazy. So today, we actually went in to the county clerk or whatever it is to give them the application, and you sit down with the lady. And when they came to that part, the lady said to Joanne, are you related to Steve? She said to me, am I related to Joanne? And I asked the lady, I go, why do you even ask that? And I found out that in New Jersey, second cousins can marry, which blew my mind. Anyway, we have a uh, great show today. Um, I'm going to tell you something. I, I listened to my guest's uh, latest album, and she sings one of my favorite groups, and she just kicks ass. And my guest is Juliana Hatfield. How you doing, Juliana? I'm good. Thanks. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, so I listened. I listened to uh, you, uh, your lady sent me uh, your new album. Her people, her new album is Juliana Hatfield sings the police. How did you? It's really. It's great. And how did you pick the police? Uh, have they been a big influence to you throughout your life? Well, I like everything that I do. It it was really just a whim or a um, an idea that just popped into my head. You know, like um, I had. I, Last year, I had done an album of all Olivia Newton-John songs because she was a big favorite of mine when I was a kid. And um, The Police was just another band that was really um, a big deal in my life when I was an adolescent. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, the songs are just, like, really, really fun. Um, I, I always was able to sing along really easily to Sting's voice because he's got such a high voice for a guy. And and I just felt, I don't know, when I was, I, I'm, something's going on, like I'm, I'm exploring the things that were important to me in my adolescence. And The Police was one of those bands that was important to me back then. What was funny about The Police is <clears throat> a lot of people, you know, younger people today, just hear them on classic rock. A lot of people don't understand. I mean, I saw them at JFK in Philadelphia in front of, Hundred thousand people, some in Dodger Stadium in LA, in front of a huge crowd. A lot of people don't know how how they affected so many of our lives because it was music we never really had heard. I know, yeah. I mean, they were huge for a while there. They they started out as kind of um, you know they were playing when they first came to Boston where I live. They played a small club or a smaller smaller venue, and then they shot shot into the stratosphere and they became one of the biggest bands ever. But yeah, they think they were very, um, very, they affected a lot of people, a lot of musicians, and I mean, they have, I think that they, they're kind of, um, people have mixed, some people have mixed feelings about the police and about Sting, but it's kind of undeniable the kind of influence they had uh, and how, they were, they were unique, you know, at the time, they had a sound that was, it didn't really, um, sound like any other band i mean they had they took from they took from reggae and from other genres but they really sting's voice was always unique and they're as players they all had um, really original styles and you know a lot of us back then we, we didn't see three people in a band much except for me like my older brother listened to emerson lake and palmer but i wasn't used to seeing three people yeah and that's that's what i thought was so one of the things that was so great about them in the in the beginning um, you know, they would tour as a trio, and it was and it was raw. You know, they weren't. Um, it was kind of unpolished. And they, the first three albums, if, if you listen to them now, go back and listen to them. It's 
surprising how raw and unpolished they sound, and it's really that's why they hold up so well. Because there's it's refreshing how how unpolished it all sounds, and it sounds it sounds like three guys in a studio playing together rather than a whole bunch of overdubs being laid on top um, in with care. It just sounds like a, a, three guys playing music together. So, so when you when you got the whim to do this album, as you said, you're working on whims. Um, do you have to contact the band, or what was your whole process of putting this album together? And and how did you pick the songs too? Well, like I said, I had, I had just come off of doing an album, recording an album of Olivia Newton John songs, which was um, that was a unique challenge because her voice is just. It's very, uh, uh, she's a very talented vocalist, very um, adept and able to do a lot with her voice. She's an underrated singer, I think. So it was challenging as a singer to sing all those songs. And But it was really fulfilling for me to, uh, just to express my love for Olivia Newton-John and to breathe some new kind of energy into the songs. But now I forget your question. Oh, how how did I go? To, how did I choose the police? Yeah, did you have to? Did you have to contact them to get the rights oh, to play right. it? Um, you know that's that's a question for the record company. I know that there's like there are publishing issues that there we, we have to get permission. For, I think from um, the people who publish the songs, but, but he did. The label was able to do that, so everything's in the clear. It's really not that complicated okay. it's just a question of you just have to take care of these simple legalities and um, copyright legalities and, and after that it's, it's good we're good to go so it's clear sailing now being a policeman as you are and I am how do you go about picking the songs you want to put on this album well it's it's not a very systematic system that I have it's like there, there are some songs that I just um don't even have to think about like I knew I wanted to do certain songs like um now I can't think of any of them like something like um for me I really wanted to do um sorry I'm totally losing my Murder, murder, murder by Numbers that was great the version you did oh yeah like no actually that one wasn't that one wasn't a definite from the beginning something like um can't stand losing you. I, I, I just kind of. Oh no, 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 something like every breath you take. Can't stand losing you. I just kind of knew those are songs that I can, you know, relate to, and they're so strong, they're so solid that I just knew I wanted to try them. And then there were certain other ones, um, like Hunger for You, the one that's in French. I had a I had a personal connection to that one, and because I used to, I once tried to write a song. I did once write a song in French and sang it, and um, I studied French in school, and so I really wanted to sing the French song, and so that was it. And then another one I was interested in was, I mean, I have a, I have a story for every song, you know, like I I Hole in My Life was on my list of songs that I I thought I have to have a personal some kind of a personal connection to the song, so it's either like. I relate to the psychodrama in a song like Every Breath You Take. It's this obsessive sort of um, 
a sort of obsessive feeling that I that I've dealt with myself, and I and I understand that it's like I understand the darkness in the song. And then there, another one, "Whole of My Life," also has a sort of darkness, loneliness that at one point in my life I could really relate to. And then there are other ones that I think have resonance today, socially, culturally, politically, like "Rehumanize Yourself" and "Murder by Numbers," stuff that's exposing the um, the evil of the ruling class, basically, stuff like that. I felt they really had a place in today's culture. Now, when, when you record them, you have to do your own spin on them, and, but you're a fan of them. So I'm not a musician, so I wouldn't, you know, if I listen to music and I appreciate it, then I would never try to sing it because I can't sing. But you, you know, you're very talented. When you record them, do you feel, is there pressure on you to feel like you're putting, giving justice to them? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to let anyone down. I don't want to, I don't want to let any police fans down. I don't want to piss any fans off. I don't want to, I don't want to butcher the song. I don't want to, I don't want to do anything that doesn't make any sense. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to make a spectacle of a song just for the sake of making it sound different. You know, there has to be, I have to have a connection to the material and I have, you have to have a, I feel like I have to have a respect for for the the, the original versions. You know, I don't want to disrespect the band. I don't want to piss anybody off. But at the same time, I have to I have to feel free to mess around with stuff and to make it my own. And I, I have a lot of I have a good confidence when I'm doing a cover. I I feel like I know. I feel like I have a knack for recording covers, and I kind of know what I'm doing in it, so I don't worry too much about it. I feel like if I have a connection to the song and to the melody, I can really make it my own pretty easily. Well, it's funny when I listened to this this uh, album, I didn't consider them covers. I consider them interpretations. Because I think a cover is when you know you go to the local bar and they're playing Foghat to the T. I mean, yours yeah, like yours have bar, your own yeah. spin. Yeah, well, thanks. That's a that's a nice compliment because I do feel like I make make the songs my own. I feel like, I mean, my voice is pretty original sounding. I don't I don't really sound like anyone. So I, as soon as I start singing someone else's song, it kind of becomes my own because of my voice is uh, my voice doesn't really sound like anyone else. So I have that going for me. That's a that's a sort of easy trick way to make it my own is just to open my mouth and sing it. And and the fact that I'm a woman and sings a man, that's another that's another way that I can differentiate my versions really easily. Now, when did you start playing music? What made you get into this career? You've had a great career, you've released a ton of material. But were you musically inclined as a child or when did this musical thing was, grab you? I was always, always playing music. I was singing. There was a piano. There was always a piano in my house. And, and my mother, who was a journalist by trade, she taught piano lessons on the side. And she also um, accompanied the church choir on piano. So she was teaching piano lessons in my house so the music was always around and I and I always 
played piano because it was there. And I took piano lessons. That was my first instrument, actually. And my dad also played piano on the side. So you started playing piano. Now, when did you move yeah. to turn it when playing guitar? I heard that you heard X and you loved that band and that got you into rock. Yeah, well, when I was about 10 years old, I asked my parents if I could have guitar lessons and they didn't know anything about guitar. So they, my mother, you know, she couldn't, could not teach me guitar as she could teach me piano. So they, they found a, a guy, a local guy who, who was the son of my favorite English teacher at my high school. And he was a guitar teacher. He taught me some acoustic guitar skills, taught me about chords and stuff. And he forced, he would force me to sing and play at the same time, which at the time when I was 10 years old, it was kind of mortifying to sing in front of anyone. But he, I, I remember playing, he, he taught me the chords to leaving on a jet plane and he made me sing leaving on a jet plane when I was playing it. So I guess I have him to thank for for that. And then later on in high school, that was when I discovered all the great, um, I don't know, they were calling it post-punk or college rock, quote-unquote college rock, like, yeah, like X, like early REM, the replacement, stuff like that. And that was when I realized, like, wow, I really could do this myself. I really want to do this. I got to play in a band. In high school is where that that spark was now, ignited. Now, you went to Berkeley, right? I did, yes. Now, was that because, I mean, that's a, that's a very, very, very good musical school. Was it hard to get in, and, and what, what was the process back then? Well, um, I remember that I you, should, you had to declare, when applying, you had to declare your, your instrument. You know, and I and I, I applied as a piano student because I had all these um, years of training on the piano, and I had no vocal training at the time, and I and I didn't really know much about guitar in terms of like reading guitar music, and so I I kind of cheated the system. I got in as a piano student knowing that I. I wanted to study voice, actually, knowing that I didn't want to study piano, because at that by that point I had lost all interest in playing piano. So I got into Berkeley as a piano student, and I I did one semester as a piano student, which was kind of a drag because I didn't want to play piano, but at the same time it was great because I was forced to learn all this jazz stuff. I, I learned how to um, comp piano from comp jazz piano from a lead sheet which is was like a totally new world for me because I had been I had been trained you know reading Beethoven and Bach and Brahms and stuff like that so I learned how to play a more kind of improvised and looser piano which helped me later in, in terms of what I could do in the studio and after one semester as a piano student I switched over to the vocal department and I started studying voice and that was great because it gave me gave me a base upon which to um, you know strengthen my voice, which I really needed to learn how to do. So you're classically there. I mean, you're you're trained. You're musically trained. You know, you have a voice training piano. I know now you play the drums, you play bass, you play everything. But 
when you get out of Berkeley, I mean, at what point did you say, I'm, this is going to be my career? Because, you know, people go all different routes. You know, I know someone who plays violin for Paul Anka, you know, but she also plays yeah. things. When did you decide that you said, all right, this is what I'm going to do? Well, it was actually before I went to Berkeley. Right after I got out of high school, I went to Boston University for one semester just because I, I, I didn't really have the guts to go to music school at that point. I just, I didn't really, I was just scared. I knew I wanted to play in a band, but I didn't know how. So I, I went to BU and I thought I'd just get a sort of like general education and I'd find people to play in a band with at BU, but I didn't. I couldn't. I didn't know how to find musicians. I was very, very pathologically shy. And so after a miserable semester at Boston University, I tr that's, when, that's when I applied to Berkeley. I transferred for the second semester of the year. And my goal was just going to Berkeley. My goal was to find people I could play in a band with because at that point, all I wanted to do was be in a band. And I was obsessed with the idea. and. I was, that was my only goal. I wanted to be singer and guitar player and songwriter in a band. I wanted to front a band, and that was... I was a little bit deluded, maybe, but I think that you have to be... If, you're, if your goal is so clear, you have to be single-minded about it in order to achieve it. And so... Yeah, I knew when I went to Berkeley, I just, all I wanted to do was play play my songs in a band. Now, now, when did you start writing songs? I mean, when when did you feel when you two questions in, in one? When did you start writing songs, and when did you feel you found somewhat of your voice? Well, I was, I was writing songs as a kid. Um, my mom used to tell me, or she reminded me that I would always constantly be making up songs like in, on car rides that I'd sing I'd sing out the window I'd sing about the landscape that we were passing in the car I'd just make I'd spontaneously start singing songs about my environment um, and then later when I started taking acoustic guitar lessons I, I wrote a couple of songs back then and then I wrote some more songs in high school so it was always something that always something that I did I think and I, I guess I got more serious about it when I started the Blake Babies, my first band. And when we got together in college, that's when um, I was able to really develop some of my high school poetry. I had, I had poems that I set to music in the Blake Babies. Like, there was a song called Swill and the Cocaine Sluts that was on the first Blake Babies album, and that, that had been a poem that I... That was published in my high school literary magazine. That became a song. Now, how did you end up in the Blake Babies? You said you met him in college, but you know, I know, I know, Boston is a very um, hip scene. The comedy scene was always great there. You have a lot of colleges, so they're into better music. They're into something new. They're very open-minded. Um, did you guys take off right away when you got together, or what was your path to getting somewhat success? Um, it was actually hard. We we struggled a lot. We, I remember having to, um, we, we would take like, we got, we got this, um, rehearsal space down in the, the edge of the South End, which at the time was a neighborhood that was kind of, um, gritty. 
I guess you'd say now it's all gentrified and expensive, but back then it was it was kind of quiet and run down and not maybe not that safe. But we we would take the number one bus down from down Mass Ave from Berkeley down to Albany Street, and then we would get off the bus and we would walk about a mile to this grungy rehearsal space that had no heat in the winter and. So we'd be freezing, you know, I'd be carrying, I'd be carrying this heavy base for a mile down Albany Street, which was not the safest neighborhood, and then we'd go and we'd practice in this freezing rehearsal space, and then we'd lug our guitars back to the number one bus and take it back up to Berkeley. And so, you know, for, and then we were, we did all the stuff that you have to do when you're starting out in a band. We, we, you know, you get yourself on a, a club gig opening for someone on a Wednesday and by you have to give out a bunch of ticket free tickets and if you can get a certain number of people in the club for your set then they'll let you open for someone on a Friday night and so we did all the stuff to sort of try and build a following and it was a, it was a slow process it, it was not um an overnight success story at all we we worked our butts off and you know we we when then we made recordings. We we um we just we tried to do everything really cheaply, like recording and over the overnight um overnight you know in, in studios an overnight session where no so you, where you would be getting out. Sorry, I keep losing my the ability to speak. We we'd be leaving the studio. At, when the sun was coming up because it's cheaper to record in the night session and um and then sending demo tapes all over the place and um no one wanted to put our first record out so we put it out ourselves and then sending the albums around so really long slow boring story now you guys recorded a few albums uh why did you end up breaking up well, that's a complicated question. Um, what's a complicated answer? Um, uh, how do I answer that? I think that I felt that I wanted to play with some different people. I felt I felt that we had gone as far as we could musically as a combination of people. I wanted to play with new people. And I think Frida, the drummer, was kind of... Um, she was just tired of being in the band, and I think it was just as sort of uh, we all kind of wanted to go our separate ways. So, so you go your separate ways, and now where do you go? Because I mean, what's your direction? Are you did you have people in mind that you wanted to play with when you said you wanted to play with other people, or were you just basically starting from scratch? It was, it was a little bit of. Um, being terrified because I didn't, I did not have a real clear plan of what I was going to do. Um, I had some people that I got, I got together to help me make my first solo album. Um, my first album, solo album, Hey Babe, I had a bunch of friends play on it. Um, my friend Todd Phillips, who was playing in a band called, he played in a band called Moving Targets, and then Bullet Levolta, who were Boston bands, and he played some drums on that album, and he ended up playing with me in the Julian Hatfield 3, 
and I still play with them now sometimes. And just got a bunch of people together to help me throw that first album together. Um, Evan Dando played a little on it. Mike Watt played some bass on it. Lots of different people helped me out. Well, how did you know him? Like, Mike's been on my show. Mike's Mike's a trip. He's great. Uh, yeah. Still living in San Pedro after all these years, and you know, it's just... Pedro. Pedro. He would correct you. It's not Pedro. Pedro. <laughs> he's he's so cool. Like we talk, and he always. I love when he sends an email. It's always like on the bottom. It's like on base or something like that. It's and it's just so funny. How did you meet Mike? He was. Um, I met him when the Blake Babies did some shows opening for Firehose. I think that's when I met him for the first time. He was. Mike Watts were always really um, interested in trios. We were Blake Babies was a trio, and he was very supportive of other trios and of interested in other bass players. And so he was always really supportive and totally cool and generous to us. And um, yeah, what a what an excellent character he is! What a great guy! He he helped us out in the beginning. Now, as, as you're getting helped out in the beginning, what is the music industry like for a front woman? You know, I mean, it's something that, you know, music's been weird like that. You know, I mean, when the, the Runaways were there and then the, you know, the Go-Go's and it was all different. For for what? How did the music industry treat you? Did they treat you as something different that they know will do very well? Or did they treat you like one of the guys because you had the balls and you had the voice and you, and you had the songwriting? Well, I think I had... I had blinders on at the time. I wasn't really tuned into um, the sexism around me, I, or the sexism in the world. I wasn't. I wasn't really tuned in, or I was trying to um, not pay attention to it. I guess I was just. I had my head down. I was with my my gang, you know, John and Frida and me were this band, we were a gang and we were trying to just do our we were just trying to do our thing trying to get ahead and do it with integrity and, and I was lucky because John and Frida were really allies John John was a very, John was a feminist, you know, he was a very um, he was a great guy to have to be in a band with in those early days because he was um, we were just all we were just comrades, you know. We didn't, we didn't, we, we. I felt protected by by them, and we were all on the same mission. And so I think I was kind of insulated from a lot of the stuff. And plus, we were just we were this scuzzy little indie rock band, so there was never any pressure for me or Frida to try to conform to the beauty standards of the mainstream, you know, like no one was telling us to um, get our tits out or anything, right. you know what I mean? Like there, there was no manager telling us like, look, you have to put on some makeup and you have to sit on the laps of the music directors at the radio stations. No one was telling us to do that. We were just a scrappy little band that no one cared about. So in that way, we were a little bit insulated. Now... Now, when did you you feel like your career started taking off? At what point? I mean, you know, you, you're recording albums, you're doing well. I mean, you know, it's like anything. You're living your dream. And, you know, it, it, you know, a lot of people, if you're living your dream, that's the best thing that can happen. When do you feel that your career started kicking into stride where you started getting the recognition that you deserved? Well, I don't know if it was 
know if I deserve it. Actually, actually, I at the time I was when I guess I guess when I was signed to Atlantic Records after after that first solo album, Hey Babe, I was signed to Atlantic, and and then when when I guess that was kind of when I felt like, oh wow, like something's happening here. But I did not feel like I deserved it at the time when I when I started to hear my song on the radio, my song, my sister. I was like. I felt like a, I felt like an imposter. I felt like I didn't, I wasn't worthy of all the attention yet. I really felt like I had not earned it yet. And so I was, and as a result, I was never really comfortable in the spotlight or for also for many other reasons, but personal reasons. But, um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I felt like, I felt like it was a whole lot of hype about me that I didn't believe, and I don't know why anyone else believed it. That's how I felt at the time. It was, I was not that happy. Well, although, although I have to say, the most exciting thing was always hearing myself on the radio. When I would go to a new town and I would turn on the local radio station and if I, if I would hear my song, it was always like, wow, that's, that's the best feeling in the world, hearing your song randomly on the radio. That was for me, that was the highest success. Now, do you remember the first time you ever heard one of your songs on the radio? Well, yeah, it was. It was actually a Blake Baby song. It was a, a probably a demo cassette that we had, one of our early recordings that we had hand delivered to one of the college radio stations in Boston, and they played it, and um, we were all listening around the radio like like in the olden days when before TV <laughs> when the family, family would listen to the radio the band was listening and we were all so excited it was like I remember that moment it was just the first time we were played on the radio it was so exciting well everyone says that they they you know they always remember and because I, I, it must be a, a a great feeling because that's you now do you remember the first time yeah. you heard without the the Blake babies heard one of your songs on the radio no, I don't remember. That's a moment I never. I, I was kind of in a daze at that point. I, I I can't remember a lot of it. I remember the Blake Babies days more than I remember the Atlantic solo days. Now you don't remember a lot, but how did Atlantic find you? Was it was it something that you had to really hustle, or they heard your album and they just wanted to sign you? Because I hear nightmares well, about people trying to well, get on the label. It was complicated because at that point I was. Um, I was involved with Mammoth Records, who had, they, that was the label, that it, it was a new label in North Carolina who had signed the Blake Babies. They were the only label who wanted the Blake Babies, and they were a new label. And then when the Blake Babies broke up, I was still contractually obligated to Mammoth under the leaving, leaving member clause. Um. So Atlantic was talking to the mammoth guy, the mammoth people, about acquiring mammoth or acquiring me and my contract. And so it was a little bit of, um, you know, labels were talking to mammoth about me and getting involved. And, and at that time, a guy named Danny Goldberg was the head of Atlantic and I just I liked Danny and he seemed like he had he was kind of honest and kind of, he had some um, music knowledge because he had been he had worked with bands before he had worked with Led Zeppelin and lots of other people and 
and he seemed really smart. And so I, I went to Atlantic because Danny Goldberg was there and I felt that he would sort of take care of me and protect me from the sharks. And then he was great. And for my first album, and then he ended up leaving Atlantic and I was kind of screwed after that. Everything was downhill from there. Now, I know in, in early in your career, you did Letterman. Do you remember that what that was like to do his show? Because I've always heard the studio's really, really cold. But I heard he loves music so much that he's really a big fan and likes to help people get a break. Is that the one... Is that, is that when Evan played guitar with me? I don't know. I just I know you played Letterman. I'm not sure. Oh, I don't... God, I don't remember. I don't remember... I, I feel like that might have been... We, we were called at the last minute as a replacement for, I think, Aretha Franklin, who had, who was supposed to be a musical guest, but she had to cancel. I think that was the story. And I was living in New York at the time, so I was able to say, yeah, definitely, I can do that. And I asked, I think, I, if my memory's right, I think I asked my friend Evan Dando to come and play on the show with me, just so I would have some, so I would have a friend with me. Um, because I, I was going going to play with the Letterman house band, and I think that's what happened. And I don't remember it being really cold, and I also don't remember Letterman being really into me. He was nice, I think, but I don't think... Uh, yeah, I have heard that also, that he gets very... He's very supportive of certain artists. Now, you're releasing a lot of albums. When do you feel like you're getting somewhat where you're starting to get a following, where you're a draw? where people will come to see you? Because, you know, well, that's a big part. Uh, I, well, you know, when you have a song on the radio and song on a, a video on MTV, that's that's when the crowd starts to come out. With TV is really... I, I had a video or a couple of them playing on MTV, and that's when the people started to really show up for the gig. And, you know, that's kind of like a double-edged sword because when you're not on TV anymore... Not as many people come to see you. But it was fun at the time, having big, big crowds all of a sudden. But I also knew, like I said before, like I, I kind of knew that it was a lot of hype and it wasn't going to last, and I was right about that. Well, in your career, you've played very many different music styles. Did you Do you know, I mean, you say you do things in a whim, but like, what's the difference between the albums you've put out later in your career than the albums you put out earlier in your career? Well, there's not really that much difference. I never really changed the way I approached making records. It was, um, I've been really lucky that none of the people, none of the labels I've worked with have ever tried to pressure me to do anything that I didn't want to do. Everyone always left me alone to make my records. No one ever really got involved in the studio trying to tell me what to do. I would have told them to go, you know, you can say screw it. themselves. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, like go jump off, of, you know, whatever. Understood that that I was kind of this like um, quirky artist, and I, I have a certain, I have a certain style, I have a certain knack for doing what I do, and no one can really change me. And I've always been the same, and I've always been doing the same basic thing. I've I've always had the same approach, and um, for better or for worse, I kind of 
do my thing, and that's what I've always done. Well, you've done your thing, and you, you actually you started a record company, right? EO Records. How did that come about? And it's like, that's, that's, I always think it's amazing when people start. It's, it's not like now where you can record a, a movie or, an, or a video on an iPhone. Back then, to start your record company is pretty ballsy. Uh, yeah, it, it wasn't that big of a deal. It was saying I started a record company is really just another way of saying I decided to put these, put my work out into the world without anyone helping me. I, cause I, I, I just wanted to try it. You know, I wanted to see what it was like to not have anyone, um, to have no pressure from anyone, to not feel like I was going to let anyone down and to be able to work at my own pace to be able to put a record out and not have to not have to go on tour to promote it if I didn't feel like it not have to promote it if I didn't feel like it because um, when, when I'm working with a label I feel an obligation to to promote it a little bit just just to help out the, the record company who has um, put a bit of an investment into it into me or into the record in question. I, I feel like I I want to do my part to try to help them recoup their money. You know what I mean? But it, with my own label, I didn't have to do anything if I didn't. I didn't have to do anything I didn't want to do. I didn't have to do any interviews. I didn't have to play any shows if I didn't feel like it. And um, but it's also a whole lot of work that is kind of a drag. Like I'm, I had to do accounting and business things and mailing, you know, I'm not, I'm not into math, I had to do addition and subtraction, I had to go to the post office, things like that, stuff that's not music, Right. It's not musical, not musical. <laughs> You're like, no, I don't want, I don't want to do this crap, I was, I was born to play, not, not to mail. Yeah, I mean, it's complicated, it's complicated now that everyone can do, everyone, musicians can do everything themselves and they can they don't need a label anymore but that's complicated because now um musicians have to do a lot of the stuff that other people used to do for them like promotion and stuff like that right because it's so big the social media is so big that if you don't have a big following i know people who are on tv shows who are amazing actors and they're like i only have two thousand followers and my agent's giving me a hard time, and I'm like, "But you're you're on a TV show that's doing well." It's sort of it's sort of disgusting to me at times that people... it's horrible. I hate I hate the internet. Can I just say that right now? I hate it. I think it's bad. <laughs> I think it's a ba- a bad force in the world, and I I really think that ultimately it it will prove to be very very destructive. I mean, it already is. It it helps it helps us promote ourselves and our work. But, you know, while we are promoting ourselves on social media, we are wasting time and energy that we could be putting into our work. That's how I feel about it. It's a, hor- it's a horrible double-edged sword, that, that social media. Um, I really, really dream of disappearing from social media, and I will someday. But it helps me to be able to make a living helps me to promote my work and to keep people aware that I still exist and that, that I'm still making albums. 
What I um, so I'm trapped in a way. Yeah, but you know, and what I also hate about social media is people are just mean. You know, I think about everyone's dependent. Like, you know, people just write stuff that, man, if like if I wrote something like that and my mother saw it, and I'm 55 years old, my mother would ground me. Okay. No, it's awful. It's awful. It's just awful. It is. I agree with you. And I think that, I don't know, I'm going to, I really fantasize about disappearing. And I will someday, but it's, yeah, it complicates and dilutes life, I think. And there's a lot of ugliness that is really, really comes to the fore, comes to, to the, front of the line uh, when, you, when you're looking at social media it's just like all the ugliness is right there and it, are we really better off seeing that weeding through that every day of our lives I don't, I don't think so no it's crazy so now I want to ask you also you know I know you did an album on uh, Pledge uh, what's that called it's uh, Pledge Music and now when you did yeah. that one of for some of your donors you gave them artwork and I know you went to school in, uh, for art for a little bit later in your life have you always loved art? I mean, and how do you find the time to create musically and, and play guitar and play these instruments and then take the time to get away to create art? It's, it's hard. That's a question that I'm always trying to answer myself. How to, how to go back and forth between music and art and also writing. I'm always writing prose. And it's, it's hard to... Um, shift from one to the other but you know like sometimes I I feel like I wish I could just immerse myself fully in you know painting and drawing for a year and I did that when I went to art school it was a full year full time and I really I took that year off from music and I I was just in art school for a year and it was really great it was fantastic but then I have to make a living, you know, and, I, and so I went back to music because that's my job. I mean, I, lo- I love it, but it's also my job. And so, yeah, like, I I, mean, I have this weird, this weird situation where music is, like, my day job. Right. <laughs> so, I, music is my job, and then I paint and I write privately. I sell some of the artwork, but, I'm, you know, I'm always I'm always doing art and writing, and people don't people don't see all that stuff. I have tons and tons and tons of artwork and writing that no one's ever seen or read. Um, so, yeah, I try to balance them. There's not, there's just like not enough time in the day to get it all done. But I, I try to do music, artwork, and writing. I just, I try to structure my day so that I can get a lot of work done in those three different media. Well, you know, you, you, you sit there and, and you do create a lot. I mean, you look at all the solo albums you've produced, I mean, recorded. Um, and if you go forward with your career, like, you know, you read, like, 2014, you were, you know, you recorded Needle in the Hay and, and people loved it. How did you, how do you pick, how did you pick that song? Um, some of the things that might seem like there were choices that I made were really just, like, opportunities, opportunities that were thrown my way or chance, you know, I, or choices that other people made for me or offered to me. Like for Needle and Hay, I think that um, the album of Elliot Smith covers was in progress and someone said, Hey, do you wanna do you wanna contribute a song? 
And I said, yes. And they said, Here, here's a list of songs that are still available. And Needle and Hay was available, and I grabbed it. And I said, I want to do that one. Because I really loved that song, and I and I had a... Um, I, that was, it was one of my favorite Elliot Smith songs. And I, and I was lucky that I got in when, when the song had not been taken... Before the song had been taken by some other artist. So that's how that happened. It was just kind of offered to me, the opportunity. Now you and keep, then I, re, I recorded it for that for that album. And it, but it got you some, you know, people were like, "Oh, that's a great song." Not much. I mean, is it the same feeling when people say it's a great song if it's someone else's as it is when they say it's your great song? Um, it's it's hmm, it's different, but it's the same. I mean, it's it's great when. I think it's great either way. If someone loves a cover that I've recorded, that makes me feel good. It makes me feel great to have someone say, that's a great Elliot Smith version. That's a great version of an Elliot Smith song. That makes me happy. But it also makes me happy if someone likes a song that I've written. So it's kind of all, it's all good. That's like like they say, it's all good, man. <laughs> no. Now, in your career, you know, Pledge Music has helped you a lot. That must be that must be a very uh, good feeling to see that people want to hear music from you, so they're pledging. I mean, I could imagine if you did a pledge thing, you know, back in the day, if someone did a pledge music and they got eight bucks, that would sort of suck. You'd be like, no one wants to hear me. But it must be good that your fans really adore you and they're going to help you do your project. It's great, yeah. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. I'm lucky. I, I realize that... Um, but it's a good position to be in that, you know, people are willing to support me and encourage me with with money and with, you know, other kinds of encouragement. It's great. And I, I do um, try to count my blessings often, and I, I do that. Well, counting your blessings, you know, didn't you play a Paul Westerberg? I mean, if I was a musician, that would be like a dream. Yeah, well, like, re- real life is always a little bit more complicated than fantasy life, but, um, but yes, there were moments when I would be working with Paul at, at, in his basement working on music, and I would think to myself, like, wow, my, my teenage self, my, the, the mind of my teenage self would, would have been blown by this right now, you know, but it, fact, the fact of my being in Westerberg's basement working on music with him would have would have blown my teenage mind. But real life is different than fantasy life. Real life is more complicated. Right. Now, I got to ask you another thing. You've done a little bit of acting. How did you end up in, in my so-called life? Um, at the time, I was... I was an Atlantic Records recording artist, and there was this... They, they, this, there was a new show in production called My So-Called Life, and as I remember it, the show people contacted the Atlantic people to see if I would be interested in writing a song for their, their Christmas episode of the show, which they were working on, um, and I guess that at the time I was kind of, I had I was having some commercial success, you know, I had this song or two on the radio and the video and MTV and stuff and so I was people were aware of me and they thought I would um 
maybe be right for the song I needed. And I went to meet with the people from the show in in LA and they I guess when they met me they thought that they thought that that I might be right not only for the song but also to play the character that was gonna sing the song. So that's how that happened. They they were originally were just working on um putting a song together that would fit this scene in the or this episode and then I ended up playing the character who did, did you see a similarity between that and making videos? Because they're two different mediums, even though they look the same. It's a different process. It's really different speaking words than it is lip-syncing lyrics. It's hard. I, I didn't, at the time, I really didn't understand acting at all. I didn't understand how they did it. I was I was in awe when I would be watching um, the other actors work. And I think I had a scene with Claire Danes it was a long time ago. It was before before the show had even aired, and I don't think anyone knew who Claire Danes was. But I, I think I remember shooting a scene with her, and just being like blown away by what she was doing in the scene with me. Like, like I didn't understand how she could lose herself and become this other character. I, I didn't understand how it was done. I didn't understand acting. The um, actually the, the director helped me a lot to just sort of try to figure out how to say the words and make them sound real. Right. <laughs> I, didn't understand. Well, I, didn't, I didn't understand how it worked. Well, you, you've been on TV. You've done videos. You've toured. You've played music. You do art. Now, you also wrote a memoir. Yep. How'd that yeah. come? Was that, was that something that you really wanted to do? Or was someone said, hey, but, can you do it? Or what's up? I really wanted to write a book. I wanted to see if it could be done. I mean, I knew that people wrote books. I knew that there were books. And I wanted... It was just a challenge to myself. I said, I'm going to write a book just to see if I can do it. If I can see it through. And so, I started writing... Um, initially, it was just a tour diary. It was... I, I had taken extensive notes on a tour I had done. And I... So, I wrote... It was strictly a tour diary like this is a tour from start to finish this is in, in detail this is what happened and then just kind of at the, at the time I was taking a I was I was in in a a writing workshop at this um this place, this place called Grub Street in Boston which was a, new at the time and it, it was like a, uh, a writing center they, they offer a lot of different kinds of workshops and I took a I think it was a memoir writing workshop. So I was working on writing and I was sharing chapters of this work in progress in the workshop. And I was working, 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 plugging away at this toy diary. And then the Grove Street people um, invited us to a party that they were having at the Grove Street headquarters. It's kind of a long, boring story, but it's how I found my book agent. I went to this party um, that Grub Street was throwing. I, might, I think it was a fundraiser for Grub Street for the writing workshops. And the party was packed with people, downtown Boston, packed. They And they had, um, the leader of my workshop had, asked, had invited me to read a chapter of my 
tour diary in progress at the party because different writers were reading at the party. So at this party, I got up and I read a chapter from my work in progress. And at the party, there was this um, literary agent who had never heard of me. He didn't know my music, didn't know who I was, but he really liked the chapter that I read. And so he became my agent, my my literary agent. And he... He helped me to put a proposal together for my tour diary, and which was a whole other like long process putting the proposal together. And he he was able to sell my book to this um, publishing house it's called Wiley. And then and then there was the, my editor at Wiley who suggested that I add some of my the history of my musical career in. In, interspersed with the ch- tour diary chapters. So that's how that happened. I started adding all the other information about my musical life. That's awesome. That's, and that's the story of my book. Now, you you know, early in the interview and I read, you say you're very shy. Um, what is it like for you to get on stage? Do you get the, I mean, once you're up on stage, I'm sure it's like home to you. But do you go through a, uh, when I used to do stand-up comedy, I know this one guy who used to sit there for every show, he'd pace back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. At that time, he could smoke in clubs, and he would smoke like three cigarettes in like five minutes, and then get up there and he was fine. How do you prepare yourself being shy, but you also know that the crowd's going to like you? Well, I don't know that, actually. You never know. Um, well, I, I think it's easier to go on stage than it is to walk into a party. That's what I, that's how I feel. Because on stage, I have this ready-made conversation ready to go, which is songs. Like, I know, I already know what to do. I'm going to, I'm going to play these songs for people. Um, It's sort of like I'm protected in a way. I have this musical persona that I can rely on who can be witty and charming and um, I don't have to, really think of anything else I just do that's what I do and I know how to do it so and and at this point after having played so many shows I'm I'm pretty I don't get nervous very often once in a while I get nervous if it's a particular night or if I know someone is in the audience that I'm nervous about or or if it's just like it's weird different venues have different feelings and some Certain nights I'm nervous, but other nights I'm just totally blasé about the whole thing. Because I've been doing it for so long. Um, yeah, I think I'm more confident now than ever than I ever was. I feel pretty comfortable going on stage. Now, no, no, are you going to tour for the Sings the Police album? Yeah, we're going to tour, but not until January after the after the Christmas stuff. Now, did did you do the artwork for it? No, that was um, that was my friend Nicole Anguish. Because it's cool. It's really cool looking. Yeah. I, re- I really dig it. So yeah, she's great. She's a great designer. Anyway, I want to th- I want to thank you for coming on. I, you know, what I'm going to do later tonight. I'm going to listen to your uh, Olivia Newton John um, album. Oh, you should. It's like it's some really kick-ass songwriting. Um, the, it's it was really challenging to learn and to play those songs they're very much more complicated compositions than say the police songs which by comparison were much like simpler and easier and more fun to play but i mean olivia and donald it was great it was a great experience but it was definitely 
challenging. Now, the police one, though, I read on your website, which people go to the website, Juliana Hatfield. It's a great website, lots of info, shows all her albums. Go out and listen to her albums, listen to her music, and buy her music. Just don't listen to it, buy it. And uh, it says you're going to have translucent gold editions of the LP. Because my fault, and I, on this show, I always call them albums. And some people are like, they're not albums. I'm like, like for you, I can say it's actually an album. Why did you decide to put it on vinyl? Um, that's something that, well, the American Laundromat, my label, has a lot of fun with vinyl. Different, different colors and um, different different just it's just sort of like something fun that they like to do because it's fun all the different colors are really fun and but but I think offering vinyl just basic even if it's just standard vinyl black vinyl whatever color that is black um I think it's really good to have vinyl as an option because like me personally I I don't like downloading music I don't I don't stream music I think it all sounds like crap all digital music sounds like crap to me and I don't like the experience of digital music so I think it's great to just have other options like vinyl and cassettes and CDs I think some people prefer prefer that to digital downloading well that's awesome and people, go to the website and pre-order this. I mean, if you're a police fan, you're really going to dig this. I mean, it's something that it's, I just, I listened to it, I got it two days ago, I listened to it twice. And uh, it's just cool. It's, it's, a, it's, a great, uh, it's a great album. And now, you, you're on Twitter, right? I am, yeah. It's at Juliana Hatfield? Yeah, I think so. Yes, yes. And do you tweet a lot? Not so much lately. I'm getting kind of burned out on it. But I do from time to time. I I try to um, stay stay. I'm I'm alive on Twitter. I'm still Thank you, uh, people. Go check her out. Go check my website out, CooperTalk.net. You can find over 745 episodes. Email me, Cooper at CooperTalk.net. Twitter, I'm at CooperTalk, and you can also listen to me on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, and Stitcher. So. Let's go to JulianaHatfield.com. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.